0: Good evening, everyone. How are you? Did you guys all make it out? Well, you're all here, so clearly you all made it out. Um, Thank you for braving the elements to come and be with us. We are so grateful to get to share this time with you as we look back on the way that God chose to reveal himself to his people, fully human and yet fully God. We call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the church has been in this season called Advent, which is a period of time leading up to Christmas. It means the arrival. And it's structured in a way that's intended to help us reflect on the nature of waiting. In the same way that the Israelites awaited for their Messiah to come and to rescue them from their oppressors, we too find ourselves in seasons of waiting. And it's because we see glimpses of what Jesus has done, right? Heaven breaking through all around us, but there is still a lot of suffering and injustice in the world. And so we wait for Christ to return so that he can bring to fruition that which he began 2,000 years ago. We spend a lot of our lives embracing this tension. And it's during times of our joyful celebration, like the holidays, that the pains of grief and loss can actually feel emphasized. And so wherever you find yourself tonight, whether it be in grief or in joy or in plenty or in want, we want you to know that it all belongs. And our God is the God who sees you. Grace and peace to you. But tonight represents an end to a period of, of waiting. God revealed finally in the person of Jesus. For the kids in the room, raise your hand if you've ever asked for something for Christmas and then Christmas came along, You didn't get that thing, but you got something even better. Got something even better. Expectations blown. Cool. That's great. Uh, Now raise your hand if you asked for something for Christmas. Christmas came, you didn't get it, and you were super disappointed. Okay, now parents, raise your hands if you want me to stop talking. (laughs) No, sweetie, we're not getting you a PS5. But the pastor said. (laughs) Jay and I decided to get our son his first bike for Christmas this year. And we celebrated on Wednesday because I'm actually going to be in the air on Christmas Day. Uh, So leading up to Wednesday, every time we were at the store, which was usually Target, let's be honest, uh, William would run up and down the toy aisle and he'd say like, I want this for Christmas and I want that for Christmas. And I could see the disappointment in his face every time I gave that parental cop-out answer that all of you give when your kids ask for something, which is, we'll see. (laughs) He always had these ideas of what he thought he wanted for Christmas, right? Right? He had no idea that his mother and I were about to blow his six-year-old mind. And it turns out we knew what we were doing because he lost his mind over this bike, but more so the helmet, which had dinosaurs all over it and a mohawk made of spikes, right? If you've never seen a six-year-old who's never been to a rock concert in his life rock a mohawk and say, rock and roll, true joy, true joy. You've yet to experience it. Our faith is actually a lot like this. It is, I'll explain. Because it requires a relationship that is built on trust, that what God, my good and loving Heavenly Father, has for me is actually better than anything that I could come to imagine or expect for myself. Andrew Murray wrote this, "'Faith expects from God what is beyond all expectation.'" So Christmas is a time to to embrace that reality and to celebrate and express our joy because Jesus represents the truth that God is indeed, the God of the scriptures, is someone who does everything he says he'll do, even if it is in ways that are altogether unexpected. And his promises are always better than we even dared to hope. So we decided to call our Advent series the Unexpected King because it turns out that when we look back on the accounts of the Scriptures, God usually has a way of bringing about His promises in ways that are altogether unexpected, and Jesus is a perfect example of this. Why do we call Jesus a King? Who is He the King of? Because it wasn't Israel. See, the Israelites—they spent a majority of their time being conquered by giant empires and superpowers. Much of the biblical narrative and history comes out of a place of cultural exile. And all of the prophecies pointed to this idea that one day, one day God would send a Messiah, a king, who would liberate Israel from the grip of their oppressors, that the government would be on his shoulders. This was the expectation. Little did they know that God's plan, that what he was promising, was actually much bigger than what they had possibly imagined. So tonight, I want to take you back to the first century A.D., over 2,000 years ago, at a time when the powerful Roman Empire was at the height of its influence, ruled by a man named Caesar Augustus. There's a seemingly small, uh, insignificant region of this empire where most of the people called the Jews lived. The Jews had been conquered by several empires leading up to this point. It's been 400 years since they uh, heard from their god. 400 years since the last prophet spoke, over 400 years since they experienced the presence of God in their temple, and the people of what used to be called Israel are still holding out hope that God will fulfill his promises to send a king and overthrow the oppression and establish his kingdom. Well, during this time, God chose to send angels to a couple of humble people to announce to them that their Messiah King, that their Savior, was in fact on the way. One of these people was a young woman named Mary, and she was engaged to a man named Joseph. And the angel told them that although Mary was still a virgin, that God was going to bring life to her womb, and that she was going to give birth to this king, and that his name would be Jesus. And the name Jesus actually translates, the Lord is salvation. Tonight we're going to be reading out of Luke chapter 2, and the text is going to be on the screen. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus." the name the angel had given him before he was born. Now, this is a pretty amazing story, but this is not the way one would expect a king to enter the world, right? Especially not the son of God. Normally, someone who was from royal or, like, noble birth was surrounded by a lot of pomp and circumstance, yeah? They would have the best physicians, the doulas, the midwives, and the best facilities that anyone had to offer. Notice the difference between these two rulers in the story. There were two, Caesar Augustus and King Jesus. Caesar Augustus, he represented everything that power has to offer. I think I have a picture of him up here, too. Before he came to power, his name was actually Julius Octavian. And when he assumed control of the empire, he was given the name Augustus, which actually means the supreme, sublime, majestic one. This would have been incredibly offensive to the Jews who reserved the term majestic exclusively for their God. And his position commands authority and reverence, right? He's in a place where he has such authority that whatever he decrees, it is carried out. And the reason why he was issuing a census for his empire was because he wanted to establish new tax laws. And taxes were a very effective way of reminding the subjects of an empire who they were subject to. And these taxes were often severe and unfair, So the beginning of this account contrasts the power of empire with the power of God's kingdom. And the king that God sends is born into the exact opposite circumstances as Caesar Augustus, right? His parents are among the oppressed. They're being ruled by the oppressors. They're being strong-armed by the empire. They are forced to travel a great distance by donkey when she is full-term pregnant. I'm trying to imagine the mood that Jaina would have been in if the week of her due date, I made her ride a donkey for 90 miles, which is the distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem, if anyone was wondering. That must actually be why the baby was born that week, because she was bouncing on a donkey for three days. And Jesus was born in a shelter for animals. This was not a display of might. If anything, it communicated poverty. It's also fascinating that the first people that God chose to tell his good news to were the shepherds. I once heard someone say that if you want to know who loves you, pay attention to who comes to you when they have exciting news. Because we often want to celebrate with those whom we love the most. God chose to send this choir of heavenly angels to give this private concert to these lowly shepherds. Shepherds were low when it came to social class. They didn't command very much respect. But it turns out that if you want to see where God chooses to spend his time, Who God chooses to privilege with his work and with his glory, we look to the poor. We look to those who are without worldly power or influence. The kingdom that Jesus came to establish was one that was upside down when compared to the kingdoms of this world. There's this concept that pops up in many places in the scriptures, this idea that God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. This is something that we see God communicate in his way of doing things time and time again. And we also see God choose shepherds specifically to carry out his will time and time again. When, God, when Israel asked God for a king, the first king they anointed was a shepherd boy named David. Lo and behold, Joseph is actually a descendant of that David. And before that, the man he chose to lead the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, had been working for a, as a shepherd for 40 years. His name was Moses. The imagery of shepherds is one that comes up in the scriptures a lot. It's imagery that gets used to describe the nature of our relationship to God. We are the sheep, and he is our shepherd. And actually, you know, the surrounding Near Eastern cultures also describe their gods as shepherds. It wasn't that uncommon, but there was a big difference The analogy of a shepherd and its sheep does evoke this sense that the shepherd is greater than the sheep, that God is greater than the people. This is true. But our shepherd is quite unique in that he chose to become one of the sheep. See, many historians agree that these shepherds were likely in charge of keeping watch over the sheep that would be used in temple sacrifice that an animal sacrifice seems so outrageous to us because we live in a very different world, but the idea was that the animal sacrifice was an illustration. It was a cosmic symbol. A lamb would absorb the reality of death on our behalf, and the blood of this spotless lamb would purify the worshiper. Jesus has many names. He's called the, the Good Shepherd, but he's also announced as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And why is that important? Well, Christians believe that the world that we live in is far from the one that God intended. God brought his perfect order to the chaos, and he brought about a world teeming with life and order, but we reordered it, and we introduced this chaos that we call sin. And now we have this problem of death and evil, and in order for our souls and the world to be put back to rights, death and evil, that chaos, they need to be defeated. Jesus needed to take upon himself the realities of death and evil so that he could defeat them by coming back to life, thereby rendering them ineffective against humanity. We believe that Christ is not only the shepherd, he is also the lamb. Our God chose to become one of the sheep because he loves his sheep. He's not just a superior God, he's a loving father. He's not just a shepherd, he's a good shepherd. God deciding to reveal himself in the form of a human being in Jesus was the ultimate act of empathy. If empathy is doing everything that we can to try to imagine what it is to feel what someone else is feeling, we know that our best versions of empathy fall short of reality. But Jesus, he chose not only to just know what it's like to be one of us, he chose to become one of us. Jesus is a different kind of shepherd. If we go back to Moses for a second, how many of you have ever seen an image like this before? It's an image of Pharaoh holding the uh, uh, shepherd's crook and the flail. Egyptian pharaohs were often depicted like this. And the shepherd's crook was shaped the way that it was in order to pull sheep out of dangerous situations. And the flail was both a protective weapon and a disciplinary tool. This imagery communicated that the pharaoh was the shepherd of his people. But notice the difference between Pharaoh and someone like Moses. See, Pharaoh oppressed the Hebrews with brutality. Pharaoh regarded himself a shepherd, but he had no idea what it was like to suffer with the sheep, to journey with the sheep. He simply benefited from his status of superiority over them. Moses was born into a royal household, but he stood unified with his people. A literal shepherd, he was someone who had power, but he laid it down for the sake of those who were oppressed. Sound familiar? Pharaoh carried a shiny ceremonial shepherd's crook to communicate his superiority, but Moses carried with him a real, wooden, probably dirty shepherd's crook to communicate his willingness to carry the burdens of those he led, someone who was willing to lay down his life for the sake of his, life for the sake of his people. The psalmist King David, a former shepherd, he wrote to God, whom he called his shepherd, the famous words that we find in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Fast forward a couple thousand years from that to the age of the Roman Empire, not much has changed, right? Those who find themselves with worldly power are men who tend to think themselves God. Meanwhile, God was making himself a man. One leads out of a posture of self-importance and superiority, while our Savior leads out of a character of humility. There's this passage in the New Testament in a letter written to the church um, by the Apostle Paul. He's a devout follower of Jesus, and this passage is thought to be one of the earliest hymns of the church. He writes to the church in Philippi, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, So again, God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. And this account of Jesus' humble birth that we just read about, it would prove to characterize all of Jesus' life. When Jesus gave his first big teaching, his inaugural address, if you will, called the Sermon on the Mount, the first words out of his mouth were, Blessed are the poor. When Jesus encountered people on the fringes of society, he gifted them with human dignity and love. Jesus would ultimately display his humility by giving up his life in crucifixion in order to suffer death so that he could defeat it. Resurrection from the grave was not a scenario that anybody was prepared for, right? His way of establishing power and authority was not actually to be better at domination than Rome, but rather he took the full weight of their oppression. And that oppression was rendered ineffective because death holds no power over the author of life. When Jesus was about my age, the week of his death, he entered into Jerusalem where he would eventually be illegally detained and then crucified. And the people were ready for the rebellion to begin. They thought that Jesus was ready to amass an army to overthrow the Romans once and for all because this was something that had actually happened about a century before. There was a rebel named Judas, probably a different Judas than who you're thinking of, He led a successful rebellion against the occupying force at the time, the Seleucid Empire. Like I said, they'd been conquered a lot. But even after that victory, it was short-lived, and the Romans came along and established their rule over the Jews. So they thought that Jesus was going to do this, what, what Judas did back in the day. And Jesus made his way riding on a donkey to the east gate of the city, which is kind of the back door near the temple. And people were praising him and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means... Save us now. It's a serious threat. In Rome, they knew that sometimes the Jews would get all riled up and think about rebellion from time to time, so they made a habit of every Sunday leading up to the Passover of sending the local governor with a host of military might to march down the West Gate, which is the front door, the main street of the city, to remind everyone who's boss. Palm Sunday was the beginning of the celebration of Passover, which is the holiday commemorating what? Moses leading the people out of Egypt and oppression and into freedom, into the promised land. The Romans didn't like that holiday. They didn't want the Jews getting any bright ideas. So at the same time that Jesus is marching to the East Gate on a donkey, the Roman governor, Pilate, is marching down the main street in a chariot with his army. And we see this contrast, again, of worldly power and godly humility. Jesus has nothing to prove. Both the Romans and the Jews are preparing for a rebellion because violence is how we tend to handle our differences. But Jesus had something different in mind. Jesus never sought power. He never leveraged his influence to gain favor. Jesus didn't declare allegiance to any person or nation or entity on the earth. Jesus was an embodiment of pure truth. David E. Garland wrote this, "...we must be saved from foolish expectations of glory." So that we can see God's power fully effected on the cross. God did not win by sending armies into bloody battles, but by sending his son to the cross. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of agenda. I'm so hungry for something pure. I'm so tired of fighting with people who have different allegiances than me. I'm tired of trying to grab and hoard control. It was true of Pharaoh... It was true of Augustus, and it's true of humans today. We like to strive to become like gods. And Jesus gave an example that he was God who chose to become a man. We humans, when we gain power and authority, we rarely use it to serve people well. But Jesus is a loving shepherd who became one of the sheep. He's a king who sits on a throne for a kingdom that is not left or right, but above. If Jesus really is who he says he is, then he's someone that I want to give my life to. If Jesus really is God, then he is the most compassionate, humble, loving God who ever could have been. And he deserves more than just our celebration and recognition. He deserves our worship, our love, our affection. If Jesus really is who he says he is, It really is good news and comfort for all the people. But we have to be willing to set aside our expectations of what this looks like. Because the Israelites had an expectation for what their king would be and what he'd do, but God had something really bigger in mind. Jesus came as a king, not of the Romans and not of the Jews, but he came as the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And the Israelites were expecting a king who would defeat the Romans and then set them free from governmental oppression, but Jesus defeated the powers of death and evil itself, and gave us the hope of resurrection. And this is good news. That anyone who speaks this good news, that Jesus is our Lord, and devotes themselves to a life serving him, they'll be a citizen of that kingdom. It's available to all of us. We have the freedom to follow his example. Can we admit that what the world has been doing isn't working? It's not working. (laughs) We anxiously grasp for power, and try to control and dominate others. This is not, I think, how Jesus would have us love one another. What if we chose to receive in humility what Jesus offers in the way that we treat one another? I think the world will be a much better place if we chose to follow the example that Christ set. What if we had an opportunity to put someone in their place, but instead we extended grace? What if when we had the right for retaliation, we instead chose forgiveness? What if instead of playing the game that our culture gives to us, we chose the path of sacrificial love? What if instead of striving for power of empire, we strove for the peace of the kingdom? What if in our relationships with one another, we had the mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. I'm going to invite you to sit and to reflect on the words of this next song as we receive what the Holy Spirit speaks for us today.